Thank you so much. If you have your copy of the Word of God, let me invite you to locate the book of Micah as we are in the 12, a series through the 12 Minor Prophets called the 12th Man Series. And I'm, I tell you, I'm real excited about getting all the pictures that I'm getting of you using your 12th Man Towels. I've got a few, I think, with me today. I think, well, this is a group of guys that work out too early in the morning. Uh, during the week, this is up on Signal Mountain, and you see Dr. House there with a 12th man towel. Here's another one. One of our students, Brennan Cherry, at a mountain bike race has his 12th man towel. Please keep sending those. I love getting those. Why, are we ha- why do we have these towels? Why are we talking about the 12 minor prophets? Well, the whole premise of this series, as we walk through these 12 minor prophets over 12 weeks, is to focus on 12 major promises that God has made to us and made to everybody that we know, and they all need to hear about it. So we need to draw attention to these 12 major promises that God has made to people like you and people like me. This morning, we're going to dive into Micah in a series entitled, The Who is Like Our God Prophet. Who is like our God? If you jump over to the very end of the book, all the way over to Micah 7, chapter 7, you look at verse 18... Micah even poses this idea, who is a God like you? Micah 7, verse 18. So who is a God like our God? The who is like our God prophet. And this is important. And let me tell you why this is important. Uh, We as a church, we support church planters. We support church planting. Uh, We support church planters, okay? We support church plants. We do not support this church plant, okay? This is a picture of a seminary, Union Seminary, not Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, not that school, but this is Union Seminary in New York, who on Tuesday, this is a chapel service where they have gathered, quote, the students gathered to confess their sins to plants, Together we hold our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the plants who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. Again, they said, in worship, our community confessed the harm we've done to plants, speaking directly in repentance. One headline reporting on this read, Progressive Christian Seminary praying begins to pray to plants for forgiveness. The seminary tried to explain this in this statement, and I quote, We are in the throes of a climate emergency. A crisis created by humanity's arrogance, our disregard for creation. Churches have a huge role to play in this endeavor. Theologies that encourage humans to dominate and master the earth have played a deplorable role in degrading God's creation. We must birth new theology, new liturgy to heal and sow, replacing ones that reap and destroy. The question, who is like our God, is so important because we have foolishness like this happening all around our world and most, most vividly in our hearts, this same kind of thing is happening. I'm not suggesting you're confessing to plants, but we must confess what have we planted in place of our God that we are bowing the knee to. Here's what the Bible has to say about all this nonsense. The Bible says as you look at this picture and contemplate, what must they be thinking? Here's what the Bible said. In fact, Jesus did speak to a plant and it did not fare well for the plant. 
In Mark 11, Jesus is hungry and he walks by a fig tree and he's looking for something to eat and there's nothing there. And so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the next day the tree had withered away, withered away. The Bible says in Genesis 1 that upon creation that we, that Adam and Eve were told uh, to fulfill the earth, subdue it, and I've given you every green plant for food. We read in Jude about this idea of having new theologies or new liturgy. No, the book of Jude says it this way. Jude says it this way. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Not new theologies, not new liturgy. The whole point of Jude is contend for the gospel, contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. In Romans, we have a picture of what's happening when we confess our sins to plants and when we plant things that are in place of our God. Here's what Romans 1 says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things because they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than who? The creator who is blessed forever. Amen and amen. Even Micah's name. Micah's name means who is like our God, who is like Jehovah, who is like Yahweh. That's what his name means. And so what I want to do this morning is focus on this big idea. There is no one, no thing or no other God like our God. That's our takeaway today. No one, no thing, or no other God is like our God. And Micah proves that to us. Micah's name means who is like our God. And then Micah chapter 1 through 7 just answers that question. And that's what we're going to find out today. Now we're going to read the whole book. We're not going to read every chapter. But what we're going to do, we're going to walk through these seven chapters. We're going to touch on them, hit the highlights. And we're going to see five reasons that you can know without a shadow of a doubt today that God alone is worthy of all the glory, of all the praise, and of all the honor. We need to stop bootlegging God's glory. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Him. And we're going to see today that there's no one, no thing, or no other God who is like our God. Now here's what, here's the, here's, here's what popularity says. Here's the popular view. The rabbi said this. One rabbi said this, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. That's, that's the world's view that, hey, we, we can't say that, 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 that Jesus is the only way. That's, that's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. Gandhi said it this way, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. That's the popular view. Uh, Oprah even said one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. That's the popular view. It's not the biblical view. But the biblical view is simply this. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no God like our God. That Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That's the, it's not popular, but that's the biblical view. So how can we know this? I don't want you taking my, my, my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. So here we go. Y'all ready for this? Say I'm ready. Oh, Micah's good, man. Micah's going to be real good today. Let's look at the first reason why we can know that there's no other God like our God. First of all, God is willing enough to use every one of us. Not to abuse us like every other God's going to do, like every other thing is going to do, like every other person is going to do. Not to abuse us. No, no, no. God is willing enough to use every one of us. 
Look at verse 1 in chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. Now, this is the word of the Lord, okay? And when you read that little phrase, thus saith the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord, you need to know that the word of the Lord always comes from the Lord of the word. This is not Micah's word. This is not my word. This is God's word. And it came to Micah, not from Micah. It's not Micah's word. It came to Micah. So know that. And Micah's name simply means this. Who is comparable to our God? Who is Jehovah's equal? Who is Yahweh's rival? And the book's going to answer that question for us today. So what do we know about Micah? Here's what we know about Micah. He is a nobody from nowhere. Any of you ever heard of Morsheth? You ever been to Morsheth? Yeah, it's a blip. I mean, listen, it's a, it's a fork in the road, right? It's a podunk rural place. Southwest of Jerusalem. Doesn't even have a stoplight. Morsheth. Nowhere. Micah is a nobody. A no one from nowhere. That God uses. And look how God used him. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Which he saw concerning both. Samaria and Jerusalem. So Samaria is the capital of Israel, Jerusalem the capital of Judah. So he's preaching to both. He prophesied for 53 years to both kingdoms. This nobody, this no one from nowhere. Micah of Morasheth should encourage you. He should encourage me. He's not from Jerusalem. Uh, he's not even from Nazareth. And the Bible says, man, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? I mean, did the Messiah really come from Bethlehem? I mean, come on, aren't these just Galileans? I mean, this isn't Washington, D.C. or New York or Paris or France. This is Morsheth. What good come out of Morsheth? This no one from nowhere, God used mightily in his kingdom. So here's, what, here's how you should be encouraged just because you are from a certain place never means that God can't use you in a certain place. But we're so like Moses, aren't we? I don't speak very well, Lord. I can't do this, Lord. I'm not experienced enough, Lord. I'm not good enough. Well, none of us are good enough, right? None of us are good enough. Well, I just don't have enough experience. I just don't, I just don't know enough. I'm just, I'm just not connected enough. I'm, I'm just not old enough. I'm just not young enough. I can't, I can't do it. And here's what you're doing. In Christ, here's what you're saying to God. You're not saying, God, I'm not good enough. What you're saying is, God, you are not God enough. That's what you're saying. You're saying, God, you can't use me because you're not God enough. I'm telling you, if God can use Michael Morsheth, he can use you and he can use me. God is willing enough to use every one of us. Be the best you that God has created you to be in Christ, right? Don't try to be another personality. God's given you a personality that you are to use for the gospel of his glory in Christ. God has given you that, so use that. Hey, he is willing to use every one of us. That's good news because every other God is just going to abuse you. Satan is cruel, he tempts us to sin, and then he enslaves us to that sin. But God alone is the one that says, I'm willing enough to use every one of you. Man, that should encourage you today, that that is proof that God is like no other God. There's no God like him that can take a Micah from Morsheth and use him in this way. What? Doesn't make any sense. Number two, second, God is kind enough to confront all of us. 
See, when God confronts you of your sin, it's a sign of his, it's, it's mercy. It's him being gracious. It's not, he's not mad at you. He's not being mean to you. <laughs> it's his grace. Because guess what? The wages of sin is what? What is the wages of sin? It's death. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to die in a relationship outside of him where you'll be cast out of his presence forever. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be rescued from sin, death, and the grave. That's what he wants. And so he is kind enough to tell us the truth and confront us on our sin. And let's see how Micah paints this picture. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. <laughs> Hear you peoples. Now, please know, he's not talking to plants, okay? He doesn't say, hear you plants. He says, hear you peoples. How many of you are a person? If you're a person, raise your hand. Right, you're a person, okay? Now, so that means you're included here. Hear you peoples, all of you. That's all of us. Pay attention, O earth. So here's a second dumb question. Are you on the earth? Yes, I'm on the earth. Okay, then this is for you. And all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. Not for you, but against you. Why? Because he's confronting sin. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations, all her carved images, that is idolatry, that you have set up in your heart and mine it shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire. Her idols will lay waste for, from the fee of a prostitute. She gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And notice how passionate this prophet is. Look at verse 8. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. This is the streaking prophet. He removes the clothes from his body because he is so sickened by the sin all around. See, here's what Micah does. Micah sees sin everywhere. In other words, God sees sin everywhere. And so Micah strips himself, not only tears his robes, I'm talking about he is lamenting and he is mourning, stripped naked and mourning for the sins of God's people. Man, when's the last time you even gave a second thought to your sin? When's the last time your sin upset you at all? See, here's, we, we see sin everywhere, so we see sin nowhere. But God still sees it. And Micah calls it out. And he doesn't just confront one group of people. He doesn't confront this group over here or that group over there. He, he, when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Micah, here's what you see. Micah is the Steph Curry of the minor prophets. He's got quite a bit of range He's hitting everybody. He's calling out all sin from Jerusalem to Samaria. All sins being called out. In fact, from verse 10 to verse 15, we have, we might call him the rapping prophet. Because what we have here, there's some Hebrew poetry, some Hebrew puns, some Hebrew rhymes, if you will. For example, look at verse 10. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Beth. 
Leofra, roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of uh, Zayanon, do not come out, the lamentation of Bethizel shall take away from you its standing place, for the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem, harness the steeds to the chariot, inhabitants of Lachish, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel, therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath, the houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mershah, the glory of Israel shall come to Agilum, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Now, in the Hebrew language, this is what it sounded like. Brad, I wish somebody could give me a beat or something so I can spit these rhymes that Micah is spitting in the Hebrew. It would go something like this. Tell it now in tell town. Weep not in weep town. Roll in dust at dust town. No beauty at all in beauty town. No going out from out town. No neighborliness in neighborhood town. Uh, no bitter or bitter tears at bitter town. No peace at peace town. No horsepower at horse town. No possessions at possession town. No testimony at testimony town. In the Hebrew, that's how it reads. So let me tell you what Micah's doing. He's not just spitting rhymes here in vain. He's not just using poetry and pun. This is prophecy. He is professing judgment that's coming. He's confronting sin. And then he gets very personal in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Those who are coveting what their neighbors have. Trying to keep up with the Joneses. We do that at night in our beds when you scroll through social media wishing you had everything that everybody else had. Right? that's, That's the sin of covetousness. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, in, in, in verse 6, about do not preach, they say. Thus they preach, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah, don't preach that. Micah, that's too hard. Micah, don't preach that judgment. We're God's people. This disgrace will not overtake us. Surely God will not do that to us. See, they want preaching that will tickle their ears, not something that, that, that will convict them and challenge them. Pastor Tony Evans said it this way. There's a lot of folks in the church that are milk Christians. They want some milk that goes down easy. Pastor, just preach something that makes me feel good about myself. Don't preach any meat because meat doesn't go down so easy, does it? You got to chew meat. You got to work with it, as Pastor Evans said. You got to chew it and, and, and you have to apply it and it challenges you and it convicts you. But oh, just give me some milk that goes down easy. Well, Micah's not giving them any milk that's going down easy. And they're saying, wait a minute, don't preach that. Surely this disgrace will not come upon us. And so he calls out their sin and continues to do so in verse 8 in chapter 2 as he talks about refugees and widows and orphans and children and then injustices being done to them. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he calls out the heads of Jacob, the heads of Israel, the prophets, the priests are being called out in chapter 3. I'm telling you, he's confronting everybody on their sin. No one is off limits. So when it comes to the Word of God, the Bible is an equal opportunity confronter. God's Word confronts everybody. No one is off the hook. In fact, if you go to chapter 7, look what Micah does in verse 1 of chapter 7. He even says, woe is me. He even includes himself 
in chapter 7, verse 1. He includes himself in the sins being confronted. Kind of like when Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That when you come into the presence of the holiness of God, let me tell you something. When you come into the presence of the holiness of God, you very quickly understand, hey, this God is incomparable. Nothing compares with him. No one compares to him. No other God compares to our God. And when you come into the holiness of Almighty God, your sin will surface quickly. Not because God's mad at you. He's confronting you because he is being kind to you and merciful to you. He does not want you to perish. He does not want death for you. He wants you to be saved and rescued and given life eternal now and forevermore. To enter into the family of God. To be a part of the kingdom of God. He wants that for you. He desires that for you. And he desires that for me. I don't know if you've noticed or... or, Seen or heard recently, but Pastor Benny Hinn has renounced the prosperity gospel. At least on two occasions, he's begun to renounce it, which is very encouraging uh, to me. I mean, that's really, that's big news. It's big news, especially among those prosperity preachers and just churches in general. I was, the last interview I saw of Benny Hinn renouncing this, he made a comment that those who preach the true gospel are those like Franklin Graham. And then, then he mentioned Baptists. He said, Baptists, they preach the true gospel. If that is indeed so, then we Baptists, we should be the first ones to fall on our face before a holy God in repentance and confession like Micah and like Isaiah crying out, woe is me. See, God is kind enough. to This this conviction, this heaviness you're feeling right now, that is your sin being convicted, okay? God, God doesn't want you to remain in your sin. He doesn't want you to live or die in your sin. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Here's another reason we know that God is incomparable. And we see it in chapter 4 and 5. So if you'll jump over to chapter 4 and 5, and it reads this way, God is gracious enough to include whosoever of us. Whosoever of us. God is gracious enough to include whosoever of us. Now chapter 4 is the millennial kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth. What is to come, what we place our hope in. And we know this from, look at verse 1. We know this from chapter 4, verse 1. It simply tells us this. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Somebody say latter days. Not later days, but latter days. That on the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Verse 2 in chapter 4. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. And then look at verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. What? And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Wait a minute. You mean in that new heaven and new earth, that, 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 in, in, that, in that new kingdom, you're telling me that there'll be no more war? Nope. Uh, they won't need weapons. The weapons will be farming tools. There's no more war. 
No more death. No more conflict. Peace, true peace, not tainted with sin. Peace everlasting. And look at this. But they shall sit every man under his vine, verse 4, and his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid. Let me ask you, is anybody in here dealing with any kind of fear in your heart or in your life? You dealing with any fear today? You got any fear about this thing or fear about that thing that has, that has just shackled you and gripped you? Are you gripped with fear today? Guess what? There's coming a day when there is no more fear. And no one will be afraid. Can you imagine a place like that? A life like that with no fear, no depression, no death, no disasters, no loss? What kind of place is this? Here's the kind of place it is. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Not for a long time, not for a lifetime, forever and ever. Man, this is the hope that we have. Amen, church? It's coming. It's coming. There is coming a day when you look at the brokenness of the world, you don't have to just conclude, man, there is no hope. You don't have to conclude that. But here's what we do. Here's what we do. Here's what I do. You, you know what I do? We, we ask the question, why? And we not only ask the question, why? We take our tent stakes and, and, and we, we camp out at why? We waste so much time in our life asking, why, Lord? Why me? Why not me? Why now? Why not now? Why divorce? Why depression? Why death? Why fear? Why loss? Why pain? Why separation? Can I tell you, we will never get the answer to our why questions. Not on this earth, we'll never get them. You're never going to get them. And I don't know if heaven, if it'll even matter. But here you're not going to get them. But we do have an answer to a question. And it's not the why question, but it's the who question. It's the question that in the seasons of your why, who do you turn to? In the seasons of your why, who do you trust in? In the seasons of your why, who is the who and the who is Jesus? That's who he is. And we see that in Micah 5 verse 2. Look at Micah 5 verse 2. Here we go. Oh, this is good. Now muster your troops, O daughter of, of troops, and see, this is verse 1, siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I mean, when they did that to Jesus at his crucifixion. Uh, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. That is a messianic prophecy of the Christ child to come, being born in Bethlehem. Not being born in Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Paris, or France, or Jerusalem, but little old Bethlehem, the city of David, where upon this day a Savior's been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. His name is Jesus. He lived perfectly. He died a death you and I should have died he was buried he was raised to life and he's coming again and whosoever shall believe in him shall experience this place and time with him forever and ever and ever you know when my brother worked for the New Orleans Saints I had an opportunity to speak to the team a couple of times as chaplain and uh, enjoy that for a couple of years and and, and after games, the games I was able to go to, it'd have to be a Monday or Thursday night game, but after those games, they would feed the team. They catered in food, and they'd feed the team and feed the players and their families, and everybody would go in there. Well, I got passes to go in there, so I'd go in there and thinking I was something, right, eating with the players and their families. And 
There were all kind of celebrities in there. Reggie Bush was on the team then, and his girlfriend was Kim Kardashian, and her whole family was in there. I mean, there were celebrities everywhere. There were superstars everywhere, pro athletes everywhere, and I'm looking around there thinking, I don't belong here. There's no reason I should be in this room. There's no reason for me. I have no right to be in here among these New Orleans saints. Well, I'm telling you, if you'll trust the Lord Jesus Christ, when you get to heaven, you won't walk in and say, man, I don't belong here. You say, I've trusted in Jesus. I absolutely belong to be in here with Micah and Isaiah and all the saints of God because I put my faith and my trust in Christ alone by grace alone. And whosoever will do that will be with Jesus in glory. Amen? Amen? He is worthy. There's no one like him. There's no one like our God. Because he is gracious enough. He's kind enough. He's willing enough to include. And amen, he is enough. But let me warn you against this. Let's not fall into. There's two camps that we can fall into. One of them is is this camp that says, in fact, one scholar called it this. Uh, he called it the overrealized eschatology, which is just a big word for saying the end times and overrealization of that now. Wanting all that we're going to receive in glory right now. Why can't I have that now? I want that now. And out of that has birthed the prosperity gospel. So that's a, we don't want to be to that extreme. And we don't want to be to the underrealized eschatology wing either, which says, hey, there's no hope. There'll never be any hope. Everything's broken. Everything's meaningless, utterly meaningless, and there's no hope. We've got to be in the middle. And in the middle is the mediator between God and man, as man is Christ Jesus. And that's where we must be. And God is gracious enough to include every one of us. Boy, isn't that good? All right, let's move on to chapter 6. All right, God is patient enough to plead with each one of us. I think this is number four. If not, it's one of them on your outline. I think it's number four. Yeah, it is. Chapter six, God is patient enough to plead with each one of us. So in chapter six, we move into a courtroom. All right, now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, y'all know who Martin Luther is? Anybody? I've got a picture. It's hard to see, but this was at college game day at the Georgia-Notre Dame game yesterday. And you see that at the very bottom, that poster board of a person that just looks like they don't belong there. You see that guy? That's Martin Luther, okay? So that's a picture of Martin Luther. So I guess they took the, I think Georgia took the picture of Martin Luther because of a Notre Dame game. I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know. Yeah, some of you can get that. Some of you won't. Um, so Martin Luther was there, and Martin Luther said this about all the minor prophets. Here's what Martin Luther said about all these guys. Here's what he said. He said, the minor prophets have a strange way of talking, right? They ramble from one thing to the next. I can't keep up with them. What are they talking about? So chapter 6, there's this uh, idea of being in a courtroom, and we see that from verse 1 where he says, Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains. Jump down to verse 3. Here's, here's we see the, here we see the heart of our God. He is pleading with his people. He is patient enough to continue to plead with us. We see it in verse 3. Oh, my people. That's a, he's pleading with them. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving, somebody say saving acts, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And then notice what God does. So there he's talking about redemption. He has redeemed his people. He has delivered them from Egyptian slavery. Okay, he brought them out of Egypt. 
when they were enslaved. That is, redeemed them. He delivered them. He saved them. He rescued them. Then he talks about Balak and Balaam. That Balak got, wanted Balaam to curse Israel, but God intercepted and only allowed him to bless Israel with what he said. So he saved them there. And then the last one there, Shittim to Gilgal, those are the campsites before and after they crossed the Jordan River. So th- these are three redemptive acts in Israel's history. And God is reminding them, I have saved you. I have delivered you. I have redeemed you. Okay? That's the picture. Now, this is what I require of you, says the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And so in this second part, Micah 6, 8 is what God requires of us. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Now notice the order of these things. Be obedient and walk in humility with me. That does not come before they're redeemed. Obedience always follows redemption. Redemption never follows obedience. Yes, you could say Christ was obedient even unto death, and because of that we're redeemed. But outside of, besides Christ... Redemption never follows obedience. Obedience follows redemption. We are redeemed, we are saved, then we obey. You are not saved because you obey. You obey the Lord because he has saved you. Children do not obey their parents in order to become their parents' children. Children obey their parents because they already are their children's parents. Are their parents' children? <laughs> children's parents. That might work too. See, redemption comes first. We're redeemed by grace alone. By grace alone. And the Ten Commandments read that way. The ten, before the Ten Commandments, God says, I'm the one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Grace, now obey. Grace and obey. So don't get those backwards. And so here's what God requires of us. Now they list some things. God, do you want us to, like in verse 6 and 7 in Micah 6, do you want us to offer uh, burnt offerings? Do you want lambs? Do you want rams? Do you want me to offer my firstborn for my transgression? Here's what God says. Oh man, he's pleading with them. What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God? They want to know, God, how can I get you off my back? Can I give you something that you'll leave me alone? I know you've redeemed me, I'm, that's great, but can I just do something that you'll leave me alone? God said, nope, I want every part of your life. I want you. I want your heart. God, I just want you to leave me alone. Can I offer you a ram or offer you a burnt offering, offer you my firstborn? He says, that's not what I require. I require your heart. I require, because of the gospel, I want this gospel message of redemption to so compel you that you will walk humbly with me. And the way we walk humbly with God is to think about the gospel. When you think about the gospel and you remember, hey, I can, I can proclaim good news to those enslaved by sin because I was once enslaved by sin. Hey, I, I, can, I can care for orphans because I once was orphaned outside of a relationship with Christ. Hey, I can serve the widow and, because I too was once widowed away from the family of God. I, I did not belong in the family of God until Christ saved me. And when you think about the gospel, it will compel you to love kindness, do justice, and walk humbly with your God. And God is so patient that he desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he is patient enough to plead with us, oh my people, oh my people, oh my people. 
Yet we live in a communicated, our world, we live in a communication broken world, don't we? Communication is broken everywhere, at home, at work, at school, at church. Just communication breakdown everywhere. In relationships, our communication breaks down. All the time, our communication breaks down. I need to clear up one communication breakdown. And let me just clear this up for Tanya. Tanya is not a drawer of dragons, okay? I know on Facebook, several people have come to me and said, has Tanya picked up a new hobby of drawing dragons on Facebook? There's this Facebook page that kids can get on, uh, Wings of Fire, I think it is, and they draw dragons for each other, but they sign in under their parents' name. So Tanya's not picked up a new hobby of drawing dragons, okay? That's Bale's the dragon drawer, not Tanya. We have communication breakdowns everywhere. But isn't it good to know that when it comes to what God requires of us, there is no breakdown in communication? Here it is right here. What do you desire? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. How can I do that? You can only do that by grace. You can't do... You, see, we don't love mercy. Do justice, love mercy. We don't love mercy. We love ourselves, okay? So the gospel is what compels us to stop loving ourselves and start loving mercy and kindness. Here's the last one, and we'll wrap this up. Number five, and we see it in chapter seven. Uh, we see it over in chapter seven. God is compassionate enough to save any of us. He is compassionate enough to save any of us. Last three verses in Micah 7, verse 18, 19, and 20. Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? I beg your pardon. Have you realized that your sin has been pardoned by Almighty God in Christ? He has pardoned our sin. Wow. He is, it says here, passing over transgression. For the remnant of his inheritance. Who is a God like you? What, what, what God does that? What God doesn't in anger and wrath destroy everybody, but pardon sins of whosoever will come? What kind of God is this? Micah is asking. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He'll again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Man, we see this when we look to the cross of Christ. This is what we see. He says he will again have compassion on us. And that is the cross, man. That's where Jesus took all the wrath of God, all the anger of God, all your sin and my sin. It was just thrust upon him. And he put it under his feet as he bled and as he died. He cast it into the depths of the sea. He passed over our transgression through the blood of his son Jesus, God in the flesh. And because of this, we can have life forever and ever. Not for a lifetime, but forever. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I know that we are not confessing to plants, but every one of us must confess what we have planted in the place of our God. Who has taken place, taken the place of God? What in your life has taken the place of God? What is it? Who is it? You know, Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. And many say, hey, when you come to the end of the Minor Prophets, the last prophet that spoke for God uh, was the Italian prophet by the name of Malachi. Some people call him Malachi. Right? That's the last of the prophets, right? But really, the last of the prophets was John the Baptist, right? And so John the Baptist had a dad named Zacharias. And Zacharias 
by lot was cast and he was chosen. I mean, the biggest moment of his life. He, he had the biggest platform in Israel. He was chosen to go into the Holy of Holies and burn incense unto the Lord. And so he was chosen to do that. And he's all excited about that. And he goes in there and an angel appears to him by the name of Gabriel. Says, hey, Zacharias, God has heard your prayer. You and Elizabeth will bear a son. She'll have a son in old age. You're going to name his, his name is John. You're going to name him John. And Zacharias, did he jump up and down in excitement? You know what he did? He disbelieved God. He didn't believe it. And so God made him mute. Can you imagine? A preacher in his greatest moment on the greatest platform, he's mute. He can't speak. Bad day for Zacharias. So he goes home, and he, Elizabeth gets, has, has a child. And when it's born, she says his name is John. But everybody's asking, why is his name Zacharias? That's his dad's name. So they ask Zacharias. He writes on a tablet, his name is John. And the moment he did that, he's able to speak again. And the first thing he said, one of the things he said when he was able to speak again, he quoted Micah 7, verse 20. John, John the Baptist's dad, Zacharias, quoted Micah 7, verse 20. He said, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Here's what Zacharias is saying. I'm unfaithful, but God, you're faithful. Micah says, I'm unfaithful, but God, you're faithful. Micah says, woe is me. I'm unfaithful, but God, you're faithful. Every prophet says, we're unfaithful, but God, you're faithful. And so many of us today, you are like Zacharias, and you've come to the place where you just can't take that step in belief, in believing that there was a person named Jesus who was born, who lived for you and died for you in your place to take away the stain of sin, the penalty, the power, the presence of sin in your life. And you're just like Zacharias. That, is, that news is too good to believe. It's just too good to be true, and you've not believed it. And I pray today, listen, if a priest like Zacharias can disbelieve, anybody can disbelieve. But if a no one from nowhere like Micah can believe, then anybody can believe. And I pray today as God pleads with your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, oh, my people, turn to me. I pray that you will stop doubting and that you will believe. And you'll come to one of our pastors and you say, you know what, I need to make a decision today to put my trust in Christ. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm talking about putting your faith in a person by the name of Christ and being born again. Jesus says you have to be born again. Just like you were born physically, there has to be a point in time when you're born spiritually. You don't just, I've always known God, I've, I've always known Jesus. And I'm, No, that doesn't work that way. You have to be born again spiritually and anew. And that conviction you're feeling right now is the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to be born again today, right now. Stop doubting and believe. Believe that Jesus is God's only son and he lived and he he died and he was buried and God raised him from the dead and confessed with your mouth that he is Lord and you'll be saved. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, what is that thing or that person you have planted in the place of God? Is it bitterness? You know, we don't think about idols being bitterness, but bitterness is a strong idol. It, 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 just, it, just, it just controls us. Unforgiveness is an idol that controls us. Lust is an idol that controls us. Social media is an idol that controls us. What is, the, what is that idol? Who is that person that, is, that you have put in the place of God? Is it your career, relationship, pleasure, hedonism, entertainment, hobby? What is it? Is it football? What is it? What is it that's taken the place of our God? Well, it's time to confess it. And God is willing Oh, he's willing to confront you. He's even more compassionate to forgive you. If you confess your sins, he'll forgive them today. So what are we waiting for? Church, let's stand together.